welcome to the Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. And welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis with my co-host, Ben Pronk. G'day, Tim. Did, you, did we press record this time? <laughs> <laughs> we, so this is almost two seasons worth where we haven't... Nearly 100 episodes. Yeah, and we've pressed record on every single one of them except, except for episode about 100. Recently. <laughs> we won't mention who. Yeah, the experience curve. Definitely on track, but I think we're recording. I've got red lights, which I assume means we're capturing this magic. Red on. Stand by. <laughs> um, Harry Moffat. Harry Moffat. Now, he's a repeat offender. We've spoken to Moff before um, uh, as part of the interview with the externals the legendary inaugural essayist rock band but we get to speak to him individually today Mm. and importantly because he has just released his book 11 bats a story of combat cricket and the sas now i must admit i haven't read the first 10 (laughs) (laughs) do you need to it's all 11 bats are in one book don't worry about that I was so proud of that 11 bats sequel joke that I forgot where I was going with it. The 12th man did not get a bat. The 12th man did not get a bat. But yeah, cracking read and a really wonderful, um, not just a sort of rollicking war story, but good Australian sort of reflection. And clearly the theme of cricket throughout is a, a wonderful way to, to sort of interweave Harry's reflections on a, an amazingly distinguished career. Well, it's not just randomly cricket. He had 11 operational deployments, and on every operational deployment, he had a bat, a different cricket bat. Mm. And uh, off the back of those deployments, he had people that he served with in those theatres sign his bat. Mm. And I think the bats have been on show at the War Memorial. Um, They're clearly one of his closest treasures. And he talks about the bats and the importance of breaking the surface tension, bringing people out to have a game of cricket that takes their mind off everything else that's going on in those operational theatres. And we're going to talk with Harry about that, but that wonderful, uh, just that little glimpse of normality. You know, he talks about his childhood playing um, backyard cricket and then the ability to to sort of tap back into something uh, that's very normal, very suburban, very Australian, even when you're in these incredibly uh, extraordinary and confronting environments. And important that, um, just a bit of background, that Moff served for nearly 30 years and the majority of that time was in the Australian SAS Regiment um, where he served uh, pretty much at all rank levels Mm. up to and inclusive of team commander. Um, He is a registered psychologist, so some fascinating insights with the benefit of that inside the book and on this particular episode. He's a cricket tragic, we know that. He's played in the band The Externals, we know that. And he's a dedicated family man. And a lot of those things come richly through the book. Mm. Another underachiever. Exactly. Let's get on with the show. So, Moff, we won't do the whole chronology of bats because you write about those beautifully in sequence inside your book, 11 Bats. But let's start with the first bat that you took to Afghanistan and how that bat drew intense interest from the Taliban. 
the first bat for Afghanistan, I'll say, was uh, was 2005. Yeah, so we, we were up the Cod Valley, which um, I think you know, about 70 or 80 kilometres, maybe 90 kilometres north of Tarankout. And we spent a 40 or 50 day patrol up there um, uh, just doing reconnaissance and surveillance of the area and just uh, getting some atmospherics and we're invariably in contacts you know kind of longer range contacts with the enemies the enemy uh, in that valley it was uh, a stronghold for the Taliban and and a, and a, um, and a uh, primary communications and and um, uh, people move you know um, transit uh, line for the for the enemy and uh, what we used to pull back to the middle of the valley, and these valleys, as you you know, you know some of them are tens of kilometres long and, and and tens of kilometres wide. And we'd pull out, pull back out of gun range, in um, in into the middle of the valley during the day, do a bit of communicating, do a little bit of uh, vehicle maintenance, and play some cricket. And this one day we were playing cricket. I think there's an image in the book of of uh, of us playing cricket, and the interpreter heard the. Uh, the Taliban commanders in the hills commenting on our cricket prowess, you know, basically calling us rubbish cricketers. And uh, I took immediate offence to that, of course, and uh, uh, steamed over to the interpreter and said, you know, tell them to come down out of the hills and and um, uh, play us in a game of cricket. And they declined. They didn't want to really want to interact with, with us and uh, uh, citing that we would bomb them if they did come down out of the hills, So uh, which we definitely would have I reckon but um, they uh, <laughs> they they declined so uh, later on that night or it was a couple of days later I think we we got in contact and um, a bunch of them scurried up into a cave and we bombed it so they probably in, in retrospect um, they probably should have come down for a game of cricket witness to a suicide bomb attack in Tarrant and you talk about how you were prepared for that but more importantly, how we should better prepare soldiers beyond just hard skills, so preparing them psychologically for combat. Could you offer some thoughts on that, preparing our soldiers, but also briefing and debriefing and the importance of those things? Yeah, I guess what turned my mind to kind of the preparation was, uh, was during that trip in, 20, uh, in 2005, I remember um, we were sitting around the huts one day and a, a massive blast went off in, in Tarrant And before we knew it, our small aid station there, we, there was no one else there. The Dutch had just left. There was just kind of rudimentary sea tainers and wooden hot huts around the joint. And pretty pretty soon the, the, uh, the, the meagre um, medical tent and facility we had, there was overwhelmed with dozens of dead you know, and dying and, and really badly wounded civilians, uh, mostly men and boys. Um, you know, a suicide bomber had, had cracked off in, in Tarrant County at a dogfight and um, it had caused some pretty um, severe, uh, you know, casualties. So that day we spent, um, you know, triaging, um, uh, looking after the dying, um, the, the helping the, the, the doctor and the couple of nurses there with uh, tending to the pretty severe wounds. And that, I, I guess I reflected on that time not long after on, you know, I wasn't really prepared for that. Uh, we also saw a lot of, um, a lot of the results of enemy 
coming into villages and and um, doing some pretty horrible things to locals and holding them at you know a, a fear of death and and uh, you know, extreme bullying, I suppose you would call it. Uh, you know, and I, I just never felt like we ever were trained in that or prepared for that. And I think once the once the 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 hamster wheel started in 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 the in the mid two thousands or really got revved up. The, there was less focus on those those uh, softer skills, which I'll, I'll come back to shortly, uh, and more focus on the martial. And there was a few people kind of making comments to that that extent. There was uh, less time for the handover of the tacit knowledge uh, between the more experienced operators and the right ones too, because not everyone tells the story or, or passes that information on. Just because you're good at a thing doesn't make you good at teaching a thing. Um, mm. So we, we kind of that we got wound up and it just became all about martial skills, I think, and we started to lose a bit of the old stories. I remember Joe Van Droffler sitting me down or us down in the jungle on our patrol course for about six or eight hours and he just in his stuttering voice said, I'm gonna tell you a whole bunch of stories about what it means to be in combat, what it means to kill, what uh, what might deal with afterwards. They were the kind of stories that were were passed on. What we I hope are getting better at is teaching soldiers not only to be um, combat soldiers, but to pinch from, I think it's a, a Krulak's uh, three block war uh, concept. I really like it. It's nice and neat and simple. That's We need to teach people to be, you know, war fighters on block one. If you imagine a streetscape and they move to block two, they need to be provide humanitarian and, and, and civil aid. Uh, which we did in Timor, and then in uh, on Block Three, you need to provide diplomacy and 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 kind of key leader engagement, and particularly in our job where we are isolated and working in smaller teams. I, I think that the emphasis on those things kind of fell away. Um, and in that discussions, finally, about how do we recover the force and how do we look at things like moral injury and and the uh, and psychological welfare we it, it's a bit of a stigmatized term and it certainly was then no one wanted to go through the psych and Ben you'll remember we worked you know mostly unsuccessfully I've got to say at the start to to try and draw more attention to that albeit a bit late in the piece but um, I think that they're the areas and they and they really are simple discussions I think promoting discussions amongst us all we've known all along you know the Iliad the Odyssey Homer's commented on the mental psych or the psychology of of, of fighting and the and the uh, the aftermath the, the psychological aftermath and um, you go back to any of the ancients I mean we could we could learn we could do with going right back and learning going back and, and learning about the philosophy of soldiering I, it's a thing very close to my heart and probably something I'll move closer to in the in the coming years um, about what it you know why we kill what what are the impacts of taking another human's life regardless of your positionality and that and uh, your values and beliefs that you defend psychologically um, two people I'm, I'm kind of riding with and, and communicating with at the moment or one person in particular Dean Peter Baker out of UNSW and uh, and his colleague Tom Frame have done a bit of work on moral injury and I think whilst there's specifics around that have a psychological um, bent on it. There's also, I think, a whole discussion uh, to reopen on the kind of why around killing um, and and that you know professional soldiering that we could uh, we could do well to revisit from the from the past.
I, I don't want to be unfair to any psychologists or any of the psych corps or any of the military provision because it's our best attempt. We're still, there's so little we know about the mind. In fact, I I would argue we know nothing. Probably Descartes is probably the last person to to move the needle on on the mind, what what the human mind is, a mind body kind of dualism. Uh, so we we're still in our infancy in terms of addressing this. So the best offering that you can do is provide a psychologist for someone to hopefully buy into and and share. I think what the missing piece for me and certainly the message I have now and I have for for a long time once I started studying is that we probably need to prepare everyone prior that the benefits of debriefing and give greater comfort to people that what is highlighted in the in the briefing um, is confidential now you know as a psychologist uh, I'm not giving anything away by saying that you know if people are, are going to hurt themselves or others and there is there are red flags that a psychologist is bound duty by by duty of care to highlight those however we could have a better discussion at the front about how we how people um, interact with psychologists. I, I still use one today. I, I don't suffer any ill from my experience. As I said, the book was a great cathartic, cathartic experience. However, I use them for performance. And I think that uh, the more we can move towards that um, discussion with psychologists, the better. One thing we did with the human performance program, and I'm not sure if it's still going, but was to push the psychs down to the firing lines to have to build personal relationships with the operators. And I think for a lot of guys who, are, who still who reflect kindly of those days, those things have um, led them to a really good place where they do regularly engage with, if not a registered psychologist, a mentor or a peer supporter and have those discussions. And we really need to focus on processing the extreme experiences of our operators, be they coppers, be they fire emergency emergency medical staff at the moment are going through it big time and uh, and our military personnel as well and I do a lot of work in that space now which is very satisfying and Moff what about rumination and maladaptive rumination so really overthinking what might have happened what could have been done how you should have better behaved through critical incidents and what about the importance of skilled facilitation over just one's self-rumination? Yeah, definitely. And you're dead right. If you have a bunch of people sitting around, um, you know, focusing on the negative elements, which um, anyone who's served, particularly in the infantry, knows that the the, uh, the circle of hate is a real thing, um, <laughs> or it used to be. I hope we're a bit smarter these days. Uh, but that's why, again, the really boring things that you probably say yourself, Tim and Ben, about performance, you know, routine is critical, structure's critical, uh, discipline to, to, act, to, to equip against both the structure and the routine is really critical. So I say that because after missions or prolonged periods, uh, bringing structure to the hot wash, AAR, whatever you want to call after action review or whatever you want to call it, um, and sitting down and having someone facilitate that is where the power is. It's like going to footy training and just saying, chucking everyone a bunch of balls and saying, go for it. You know, no one's going to get any better and they'll probably just practice the things that they are good at. Whereas if the coach comes along and says, right, 
we're doing this, 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 and we're going to move through it at this time. And I think a debrief or a facilitation happens exactly the same way. And in that way, it doesn't have to always be an independent arbiter or or an independent observer. Um, we we could be, and again, uh, we 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 attempted to train a bunch of peer supporters uh, in coaching and and other methodologies that could facilitate more meaningful debriefs. And when done right, I've sat in circles. With uh, particularly with young men and uh, or much younger than me anyway, but uh, <laughs> the and and it's a very very powerful thing. And uh, I never met anyone who walked away that didn't say, "Wow, well, I, I wish I didn't do that." In fact, I get overwhelmed with people saying, "Great session. When are we doing the next one?" Um, so if it's done right and the training's there, um, peer support can be done um, really really well. One of the things that seems to be very topical is the importance of meditation and mindfulness and the wider importance of creative practices. Now, Moff, you've been a singer-songwriter and music and songwriting has been really important to you. Could you talk about those creative practices? Yeah, look, you know, I, I'm no neurologist and uh, I'm kind of I know enough to be dangerous, but, you know, they, they, being creative uh, and spending time uh, being what I would say is mindful, uh, you know, it's not just sitting there zenning out, although it can be, uh, has great impacts for brain development or brain maintenance. You know, we know that, you know, people who are creative have larger parts of the brain I won't go into them or, or try to sound like I know exactly what I'm talking about but um, we know that um, specific parts of the brain are, are, are benefited from uh, mindful practice mindful practices and I think when you're doing um, when you're creating whether it be art or writing uh, I think it, it has the same impacts uh, on on brain health and maintenance so it's no surprise and I think the research is pretty overwhelming in that in that regard um, uh, just having that focus and that enjoyment and that creative aspect uh, is is really important. I, I talk about a third thing um, with uh, particularly with I work with police officers here in in um, in Melbourne, and you know it's it's a bit of a, a bit of language that they can adopt, and that's you know your first things your family and your second things your job, and often they're kind of conflated uh, uh, sometimes irreconcilably. But the third thing is something that you do. It's okay to be selfish. I don't want to spend any time with my kids today. I'm over it. Or I don't want to spend time with my wife today. I'm over it. That, that's fine. And uh, and I don't want to go to work and I'm, I'm completely disengaged from both. But um, having that third thing is somewhere you can be selfish uh, and go away and do something for yourself. And Ben, uh, I'm not sure whether you know I'd call a, a good songwriter or not, but certainly your art is <laughs> is excellent, and I, th- I can really see a real outlet there, and it's a great example of of uh, everybody doing something they enjoy uh, and finding finding their third thing away from it all. It's very very th- therapeutic. There's no doubt about it, and journaling is a, is a great way to reconcile our thinking. You know, we think 
we don't think in words or sentences or you know, we think in kind of colors and smells who knows actually we, we've got no idea how we think and and how how we even translate how i'm even speaking i've got no idea how it goes from whatever the mind is uh, uh, whether it's an emergent property of the brain uh, how that how that uh, action occurs or how it's how it manifests so all i know is that writing something down or reading uh, something um, a bit Kind of, it, it, I think it just helps that process and galvanises your own thoughts inside your own head. It's, it goes without saying, really. So before we leave the topic of creativity, let's talk about your cricket club. How important was the cricket club in your life when you were serving in the SAS? Profound. Uh, it's, you know, the, the Applecross Cricket Club for me, uh, was probably, you know, we talk about third things, I probably had a few third things, a fourth and a fifth, but uh, the Applecross Cricket Club, I have come to realise uh, it, it always felt good, it always felt like I could just be, you know, Tony or Moff uh, rather than Harry or, or, or whatever. Um, but I've come to realise it, 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 it gave me another identity, or, or sorry, not another identity, it gave me a, a broader um, and um, uh, uh, deeper identity of myself and when I started to head towards transition which was very deliberate for me um, I had somewhere to go I had somewhere where I could be me where I was equally respected or I boldly offer uh, uh, equally respected or or accepted uh, and I had a place to go where I felt comfortable um, socially um, I had lifelong friends who would look out for me and um and so it almost duplicated what i had at the unit and i, I think I, I really do credit i can i'm in danger of kind of over dramatizing this but i really do credit the, the club and the, the or the men and women that that um that are that are in the club with um with a, a, what i what i'm very happy to to say and hopefully long may it last a really successful transition and i see it common amongst other veterans uh, that have a similar story. They've had other things outside of defence. You're in danger of it define, letting it define you too much. And I think that's a great danger. That's another discussion that we need to have with, uh, with young men and women coming into these really high, extreme environments. <coughs> Tragically, in 2008, your team were attacked by a roadside bomb, which led to the death of signaller Sean McCarthy and naturally profoundly affected you. Can you talk about that attack and what immediately followed? Yeah, that was, uh, I think it was July uh, 2008, I hope I got that right. Uh, we had only been out in the field for a, a few days. Uh, we'd travelled, you know, as we do. We like to get on the ground and then get out into the uh, into the uh, area around uh, the base and get some atmospherics and uh, and just see who's out and about, meet some key leaders and, and uh, visit some villages. And we only been out for two days. We arrived at uh, FOB Lock and spent the night there just doing some planning and some other things. And then 
We played some cricket that evening uh, on the cover of the book. I think there's an image of us playing cricket in the uh, the, the shadows of a uh, hot Af- Afghan day. And um, only maybe eight hours later, we were driving south back towards Tarrant and uh, the car I was driving hit an IED, an improvised explosive device. And in that um, explosion, Sean McCarthy was killed instantly. And our interpreter lost uh, uh, one, if not both, of his legs. Um, uh, and I came away with pretty superficial wounds, actually, Tim. And um, uh, and the other occupant in the car was the same. And uh, we both, yeah, very, very superficial. But it was a, a surreal experience, you know. It, I, I, time slows down and, and I remember it kind of playing out so slowly and I, I, I don't know what that uh, phenomena is. Uh, and um, when I landed on the ground after the explosion, a whole bunch of frag had gone through the back of my legs uh, or hit me in the back of the legs and, and hadn't, hadn't done too much damage, but just burns and some frag. And I remember being so painful, I thought I'd lost my legs. And I remember reaching down and uh, kind of feeling that my, my, although my boot, one of my boots had been blown off, um, feeling my feet and, and uh, never being so kind of happy to, to, to feel feel my feet. It was a pretty surreal experience. And as I said, unfortunately, Sean McCarthy was killed uh, instantly. He was sitting, you know, no, or standing no more than a, a metre from us, just rear in the cupola. That area, you, you go through that area knowing yeah, that this is the Chora Valley kind of towards the Baluchi Pass, just north of the Baluchi Pass, or as we called it. You know, that was the pass. Everyone who's been to TK will remember looking north and seeing the Baluchi Pass. I used, kind of, I used to sit out there in a sundown and kind of, it would be there calling you up almost, you know, come and, come and fight because I think that's the area in which more Australian blood's probably spilt there than, than um, yeah anywhere in, in a long time in decades of military service probably a lot of decades so it's a renowned area everyone knew that it was on if you were going through there so none unfortunately sean lost his life there and he's a, he's a great fella sean i couldn't speak more highly of a of a more diligent guy professional now moff you were driving the vehicle on the day that you were attacked with that roadside bomb and you talk in 11 bats about how you held yourself accountable for the incident and Sean's death um, and how somewhat unfairly we think you were blaming yourself right down to the route that you chose to drive. Yeah, well, I guess there is a reality of the accountability straight up that uh, you know, was holding the wheel and did decide uh, to turn um, left rather than right. So I think there's a reality. You've got a grip straight away um, in these. And this, these are that's a reflection of the time um, because you can't wish things, realities away. That's, that's one thing I'd say. And there's actually good science on seizing the reality or your, your, uh, your reality. Um, so... Uh, but the the things you're talking about I, after the explosion, there was I was conflicted with a bunch of um, you know of of uh, emotions. You know, one was that I I was to blame um, for driving over the IED. One was you know so there was this kind of guilt. Then there was also the survivor thing where you know why Sean, why not me, um, why not someone else. Um, uh, and then also, you know, after that explosion, so my, I, I, I couldn't really go on. My gun was bent. The, the vehicle was um, 
uh, was blown apart. Uh, I was extracted off the battlefield, taken back to uh, the medical facilities, and they removed the frag out of the back of my leg and you know patched up my wounds, etc. And I, for all intents and purposes, a couple of weeks off, and I would have been fine to crack on. Certainly, the other person in the car did. And then I contracted a, uh, a an infection, and that that resulted in me being flown home to undergo almost minor bloody chemotherapy drugs to uh, to to rid myself of. And but I felt like such a failure and a coward because I had left, you know, without really any sustaining any wounds that would you would say um, would warrant you being removed, taken back home. So there's this kind of failure. You feel like a failure and a, and a coward, almost. You know, having been sent home while all the boys are still in. But it's funny because even just in you describing that situation, you've you've been fragged, you've been blown to bits in an IED attack, you've had an infection so serious, you've needed chemotherapy-like drugs, and still your mind saying you've it's only a flesh wound, you've buddy guts out. It, it's funny how that perspective works because as you describe it to me, it's like, yeah, <laughs> I mean, you needed to be in hospital. Yeah, well, it's true. And again, you know, that reality. But this, we all have the commentator in our head and that's a, a term I've kind of always used. I didn't, it's not, it, it, it fits in the cricket vernacular, of course. But uh, it's, we've all have the commentator. We all have the voice inside our head. It's just another thing we've got no idea of happening in the mind. And I've heard so many people talk about suffering either imposter syndrome or negative self-reflection or negative self-talk. Uh, you hear it a lot. Um, and I think I don't think there's a way to mitigate it expressly. I think you just need to uh, continue to have a conversation with yourself and continue to, to, to seek counselling to, to, to mitigate it. I, I just let myself go. I was in, I was in hospital, I had back issues and, and, um, and hips and whatnot as well. So I was in bed rest for, for uh, about four, six weeks, I guess. And I done a lot of thinking there and just spiraled into this deep hole of negative self-talk. And the commentator got right on top of me, you know, you weak prick. You, uh, you're, you're a fuck up and you, you caught, you, you've killed Sean, etc. And it was a very dark period. I remember I'd, I'd hardly had the, 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 draw, the, the blinds drawn throughout. And you know, I had from a few mates from work and a few mates from the club and family, etc. But I, I was pretty kind of, I guess, point where I felt as I started to kind of come out of that period and it was clear that I wasn't going to lose my leg because there was a period where um, the infectious disease doctor, I think his name was Clay, had said, you know, if this thing doesn't come under control in the next days, we'll probably have to start thinking about where we're going to take your leg off because it got up into my groin. And and um, so it's pretty low point. But the, I, I don't know, you know, I, I'm sure there was a turning point when the captain of the second eleven at Apple Cross Cricket Club, probably a turning point, Cameron Sterling, visited me basically sat on the edge of the bed and somewhat abused me <laughs> he kind of, I, I remember he's going oh fuck harry just get on with it mate you know you're supposed to be a sass bloke and you say so he says all this negative talks bullshit you know and he he kind of gave me a good third quarter spray i, I would say and i reflect really kindly on that because i think it was a turning point i started to um i started to think you know hold on well if I can recuperate my body, which I'm, I'm pretty keen to do now that the leg's going to get back and I'm going to get back into the gym and start training, surely I can do the same thing with my mind and my my, my, my beliefs as well, you know, this philosophical side I've, I've kind of had on. 
Um, and also I thought, you know, and I can't sit in here forever. And I just, I gradually kind of started just fighting back. And one of the first things I did was sit down with Sykes, um, both inside the unit and outside. Um, and it was just super powerful. Uh, I mm. started started to hear myself talking and have what I was saying reflected back and realized pretty quickly that the commentator is a fraud. <laughs> the only imposter in your head, commentator, uh, there, and I think um, I've, you know, that time's kind of given me a, a built some resilience in, in terms of how I, how I relate to the, the commentator. Now, Harry, am I right in saying I've got this mental image that the commentator in your head is Richie Benno? Is, is it that voice that's <laughs> telling you you're a fuck-up? <laughs> something from the 12th man. No, I, I have been in danger of, um, uh, of, you know, hitting one off the square versus maybe Melville, our arch rivals, you know, dro- cover driving someone for four and then going, ha, super shut that. <laughs> uh, but the common in my mind is uh i don't know i, I see the see him as a as a as a bit of a prick uh <laughs> and i would don't want to characterize him other than to say more than that moff one of the things that you say in the book that you needed to do was get in touch with sean's parents david and mary mccarthy can you give us a little synopsis on how that went i mean you were riddled with guilt were they holding you accountable yeah, well, so that yeah, of course, that's another com- part of the complex web of um, psychological thoughts and and uh, you know um, feelings. Tim, uh, I I much to my kind of disappointment in myself, it took me a long time to build up the courage to get in contact with Dave and Mary, and actually go and visit them. I think it was it was maybe uh, a year. Uh, I wrote a long email to Dave um, and uh, and Mary, and we had an email conversation. And, and it wasn't until you know maybe six, year, five years after that I actually went up and visited them. And I don't know; it was it's probably the that the I look at my feel in myself that one of the biggest disappointments in myself that I that I allowed that to to go on. Granted, you know, again, cutting myself some slack. We were, I was, we were back in Afghanistan eight, nine months later, and um, continued the Ferris wheel, but uh, the, the the hamster wheel. Um, but yeah, I, I I expected them to. Uh, I had envisaged in my head that they would hold me responsible, that um, they wouldn't want to speak to me, that I'd be the last person that they'd want to speak to. And it just couldn't have been further from the truth. They've been two of the most wonderful human beings I've ever met. Um, they were just so empathic right from the start. Um, and that was certainly the messages that we'd, we'd uh, wandered around. And we stay in contact now. We had a a, a Zoom with them recently and um, uh, and we'll get up there in due course to, to spend some time with them. But um, again, it just goes to show we bring these thoughts to ourselves where there's uncertainty, where there's ambiguity. Uh, I know Ben and Tim, you both talk about this, where there is those that, that lack of information, we just invent it. And we, because we're defensive kind of brains and always looking at, and particularly if you're trained to look for threat all the time, um, you can fill it with some pretty rubbish stuff, some, uh, you know, threat-based kind of thinking rather than, than the reality 
um, or, or, or what you know, treating human with humans with the uh, with the, the the respect that you should that everyone comes from a good positive place. It's funny, and another one of these coincidences, another mutual friend of ours who we've also had on the show, Mark Wales, was actually the family liaison officer uh, to the McCarthy family after Sean's death and uh, maintained a, a great relationship. And, and through him, I met uh, primarily Sean's sister, Lee, who's just an amazing human being. And again, that same, um, I guess, reflection that you've had, just how selfless they are in terms of their relationship with the unit and uh, sort of ongoing engagement with with Sean's friends is really incredibly brave and admirable. Yep. Now I couldn't agree more. Well put. Change grounds, Moff. Timor Leste, which uh, again you took a bat in, and uh, I think from memory you say that this could be one of your more memorable bats. You went to look after Alfredo Renato, which is another link mm. between you and Ben. Can you talk about your experience in Timor Leste yep. and Alfredo Renato? Yeah, in many ways, Timor was my favourite deployment. Uh, I think it, there was no fighting, no combat, uh, but it certainly uh, had the hallmark uh, environmental emotions, if you like, of that because it was people were, were um, they've been killing and and it certainly was uh, there's been fighting and and whatnot. Um, but it was challenging because it was this kind of mix of going back to the kind of three block model, you know, of of humanitarian aid type of work and diplomacy and um, um, key leader engagement type of work and also you know fully combat ready and always on watch um, so it's quite challenging and I think I cover a range of things uh, with it trying to be respectful as I can in the book however the highlight without doubt was playing cricket with Alfredo Renato in the hills of of uh, T or up at Malbisi was the worst cricketer ever. He's probably the worst <laughs> cricketer I've ever had the, the the pleasure, I would say, of, of playing cricket with. Uh, couldn't hit a ball, no matter what you did with it. But uh, um, I actually found him a um, intelligent, being um, guy. Uh, mm. I uh, understand he's he's seen as a, the the the, um, the villain in all of this, and and to a large extent he is. He, he deserves the, but. Uh, you know, the first time we, he he said, "You've come here to kill me, haven't you, Harry?" And I said, well, "Not not really, mate. We've just come here to keep an eye on you because you've been." You know, he was a naughty boy to say the least. He'd been <laughs> come down to the hills and shot a few people, killed, been responsible ultimately for some people being killed. So, but I found his story, his backstory, and everything kind of really intriguing. And I reflect reflect really fondly on the time kind of spent uh, chatting with him. Um, and an insight into his life at that time i'm pretty sure he was the most interviewed uh what would you call it, rebel leader on the in the pl on the planet and one of the um, most googled um characters on the planet as well he had bbc and ab 
ACC, CNBC, and everybody else lining up, all the journalists to come and, and speak with him. So it was a pretty interesting time. And we used the games of cricket there actually to we play cricket in some kind of Hogan's Heroes ruse, if you like, or not ruse, but you know, kind of shenanigan. Um, we'd play a game of cricket as all the journalists and God knows who else was there, politicians and probably local spies and everybody coming up to, uh, to, to speak to him and we'd have to make sure they weren't armed and all the rest of it. So we'd set up a game of cricket. They'd have to come through the game to, to go up there and during that time we'd strike up the game. They'd have to halt. We could suss them out, get a few images and, and um, get, you know, take all their details, etc. And then as, as they were clear, we'd stop the game and, and start up another game. Um, so it was a bit of a checkpoint. The cricket game became a bit of a, a checkpoint through which we filtered people. Um, but it was, a, yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. Curiously, on the bats, uh, we've got um, Alfredo Renato's signature and only centimetres, millimetres away uh, is Ramos Horta's, Jose Ramos Horta's signature. And as we all know, history tells us uh, uh, a year or so later or more, um, Alfredo, I suspect, you know, over overridden with um, paranoia and probably alcoholism and, and whatever else, uh, come down out of hills and tried to assassinate Hoarder and uh, and failed and was killed himself. Um, in, in the intervene times, uh, the regiment sent a hit squad to go and get him, or not a hit squad, but was a mission to try and capture him, and uh, that uh, that didn't uh, come off. But it's funny, the, the point you make about, um, you know, the, the portrayal of all these characters as villains, and we tend to get a very reductionist view on all of these, uh, I guess, modern conflicts and probably throughout history. But, you know, we like to pigeonhole things into good guys and bad guys. And of course, it's uh, never that black and white. We all exist in this murky shade of grey. And, you know, for all his faults, as as I understand, he was something of a Robin Hood character. I think he did have the best interests of the, the people of Timor at heart at some point. And, yeah, it's it's never just as binary as, as often it's made out to be in the, the popular press or in our own internal narratives. No, it's a really good point, and it, I guess it goes to preparing, back to preparing soldiers for these environments, particularly in the special ops world or the special forces world. There's, there is a deeper understanding to be had here and framing um, those types of scenarios from the outset if you're if in those in those environments particularly where you're out in the gray area of, of um, you know right at the extremes of of the fever if you like the the the, 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 the metaphorical forward edge of battle area um, things aren't a black and white uh, and the 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 interrelations between people and villages and and and, uh, and environments is very complex and um, hard to navigate so we really need people to bring the open mind to that uh, and and ask lots of questions I think um, but ultimately um, you know we've got a job to do and I think Alfredo Renato it's fair to say was was a very naughty boy and uh, <laughs> and needs, uh, yeah that, that's the that's the position ultimately. Harry, amidst all of this, you come up with this initiative to better educate soldiers in the SAS, the Wanderers Education Program. Can you talk about the genesis of that idea and how it developed? Yeah, so that came from the dark days laying in bed after um, being returned home in 2008. And uh, after I'd had the conversation with 
the uh, the doctor with uh, Doctor College about um, losing my leg. That I call it the long night because I, I I didn't sleep. I was on these mad drugs. I can't remember. It was like vancomycin and some other stuff. It was pretty heavy stuff and had red man syndrome and impending feelings of death and all those kind of you know mad side effects. And I just worry, you know, another worry was what, what was I going to do? You know, I had a psych degree, but that's really worth not a great deal um, without the kind of post-grad and everything else. And it got me to think, you know, what, what does a washed up and slinger do? You know, you've done, by that stage, I'd done 15 years on the teams. Um, you know, I'd been a professional soldier all my life um, and pretty much just a, a washed up gunslinger with one leg that was what I was thinking myself and I just remember and Ben Ben knows me pretty well yeah I I have this kind of sense of 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 Harry Moffat's type of you know justice what does you know what's fair and what's not fair Um, sometimes a little bias towards Harry Moffat (laughs) it's fair to say but uh, I I always felt like a little bit ripped off that uh, the the military, I hadn't been provided better support to be educated. And, and I, I know it's better now, but then back then I had to justify and had to pay for my most of my degree myself. And I thought, look, I, I can either whinge and complain uh, about the system. The system is what it is. It's provided very well for me. I, I, I love and love my military time and the, the ADF's an amazing organisation given what it does and how many people it, it services. We've got to give ourselves some major credit for how... The AD, how good the ADF is, uh, it wasn't going to change and in any time soon. So I thought then, fuck it, I'll build my own education program, I'll pilot it, I'll get some money and prove it. I know it'll work because I know that there was dozens of guys doing their own study anyway. And so the Wanderers education program was, was born and the initial pilot had a few guys who went off to UWA did an MBA or parts thereof. I uh, found some money from guys like uh, Todd Bennett, Rob Luciano, Chris Joy. Uh, they, they were the founding um, fathers or not fathers, donors, if you like. And uh, recently, more recently, we've had Chris Garneau, who's been a, a superpower uh, to help us. And we, we raised a bit of money, um, got them through. They, they performed at the top of their class and the, the rest is history, so to speak. We now stand at um, over $2 million in the bank. And I think we've put uh, upwards of 50, 60 people either through or into the program. And it's I understand it's hotly contested in the unit for its five or six spots a year. Uh, and the last thing I'd say is I, I hope and I like to think that it's inspired other like um, programs or initiatives uh, further. And I hope it continues to do because I think there's a, a great uh, benefit to realise from educating soldiers, uh, sailors, our air men and women, uh, uh, other ranks through their careers and, and offering them um, that support, you know, uh, obviously past a point of service. Uh, so we make sure we get return on it. But um, I, I think I, I can't think of any other way than it's, uh, it's part of the answer to all of this kind of mental health and negative busted veteran narrative that we, we kind of dance around uh, currently. So, uh, yeah, really proud of it, Tim. And I hope um, anyone listening, uh, if you want to learn more, get on the SAS Resources Fund website. Uh, there's a, a bit of um, info on there about what we've done and, and hopefully where we're heading. Yeah, look, and you should be super proud of it, Harry. I, I think 
you know, it was interesting. My experience as a commanding officer at the time as this was right. really starting yep. to kick off, um, incredibly impressive drive to, to generate this amazing ability to, to rally those incredible uh, benefactors that you mentioned before, the, the Chris Joys, the Todd Bennett's, Rob Luciano's of the world, also to establish the relationship with UWA and Dr. Michelle Roberts um, was an amazing powerhouse on that academic side to, to really right. back this. Um, but your ability to bring those things together. And it was it was quite funny because as the, I guess, the capability manager, um, you know, I was I was acting for, for Big Bad defense and we we really had to pressure test this thing that it wouldn't just be an off-ramp and i remember you throwing the um i think it's a richard branson quote you know would you you rather you educate people and they leave or or uh, keep them stupid and they stay um which i always thought was a powerful one but um from my perspective it was also and remains uh an incredible adjunct to military capability so not just a way of preparing people for transition and giving something back as you've identified but also broadening exposure to contemporary thinking on business leadership business management you know in in that particular field um, you know cutting-edge academic research which has demonstrably made uh, these people better leaders better military um, operators yeah, 100%. I like um, Danny Cooper, who who didn't actually um, partake, if you like, or participate in the program directly, but uh, he was mostly self-funding. Yeah, he, he, uh, he, he's a great example of bringing outside information back into an environment where change, where resistance to change is extremely high and difficult to, to move the needle on change in organisations in the military. So it's you know, you're dead right. It's become a vehicle or a host almost through which this information to uh, kind of bottom up change uh, can occur uh, almost passively in the background. And I think it's one of the answers to change management, um, you know, as it's kind of classically seen in the, in the, uh, in the, in the world of business and, and, um, and, and uh, other organizational kind of psychology. So yeah, look, just glad it's still going to be honest, otherwise we'd be pretty embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> and there was always a risk that guys and girls went and got this education and that assisted their transition out of the military. But you were saying, Ben, nearly the reverse was true. It was assisting retention. Certainly the the structure, I mean, in the, the unit, you, you can't sort of bang out a bunch of subjects. You simply don't have the time. So it almost um, by default meant that uh, the sort of award course, the degree course, was going to be over a long period of time. And... Moff, I reckon that had a, a positive benefit on retention that people had committed to this um, journey of study and they, they wanted to stay in the unit to see it out, which obviously meant that the army uh, got that extended service from them where might uh, they might otherwise have, have looked for alternative avenues earlier. Yep, the, the research supports that, the qualitative feedback from individuals, from partners as well. I think there's a, a, a broader... Um, uh, piece that's been done inside the unit now to capture a lot of that information. Um, yeah, and the, the anecdotal and qualitative evidence shows that people stayed, you know, for possibly up to a year or two longer um, in many cases.
off, can we turn our attention to leadership and get your thoughts on it? And I just want to give you a line from right at the tail end of your book where you say that the world is a volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous place and from what I've seen, so are humans. So how do you lead those peculiar things called humans through a VUCA environment? Yeah, leadership. It's a vexed issue, I think. Uh, it's, um, I think it's an industry now, isn't it? Uh, it's kind of self-serving in a lot of ways, the whole leadership thing. I, uh, I kind of bristle against it a little at times. I, uh, I have some other thoughts on it. But to go to that point, that, that VUCA, it's pretty common. Uh, you guys are very familiar with it, I know. Um, it's a nice way to kind of just capture a, a bunch of really um, hard words to say and remember and um sound like you know what you're talking about i guess <laughs> but the um the the i, I guess the, the the thing i've learned about leadership came from a guy that we both know probably the best leader i've worked for and with and alongside um i'll call him Myrish. uh you know just how how you know how ability to build relationships with everyone this kind of elasticity, this social elasticity, or this this ability to be able to build a relationship with the biggest narcissist in the room, right through to the biggest introvert in the room. Um, I, I few people have that power or that ability. And my kind of reflections on people like that are that they're. I use an old military Morse code trigram uh, QSL. So I did Morse, learnt Morse when I first joined the military, and. QSL was a tricode that meant I'm com I've communicated to you. Did you receive my communication? And if so, respond back with what you received. So there was no doubt about what the communication was. And I guess that QSL for me represents the best of good leaders in building relationships. And that is they ask good questions, they shut up and they listen. And all three of those things are a bit of an art. So I guess the swarming complex cloud of leadership and voices and theories and everything kind of neatly some some is summarized in relationships around communication with those three skills being at the top of um, what I think good leaders really show. And that's not to, um, then you need to discern leadership, I guess, uh, the broader discussion from things like management and command. Um, in the military, there's a time where leadership's not necessarily needed just got to shut up and get on with it and do as you're told and i think that's uh that there's there's kind of you know conflict there but in terms of just leadership generally applied that's kind of how i, I kind of summarize it at this stage because um the more you learn the more you you learn so more fun reflections your life in the sas your cricket career the band the externals family psychology into your consulting practice. On reflection, what are you most proud of? My my marriage. Um, we we just passed twenty five years together, and uh, I am among the luckiest men in history and on earth. There's no doubt in my mind. I'll be in the top half a percent, I reckon. <laughs> uh, for my wife to uh endure um you know everything that we've both been through and and uh and still be by my side and still love me and and put up with me is is um amazing 
and it's by far the thing I value the most. There's no doubt about it. I love my kids. Um, hopefully, they're both listening. Um, I love them to death, uh, but you know, get out of our house and leave us alone. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for what came after them. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that that's it. The, the thing is, I'm most proud of of you know. Look, all those things are accolades. This is a cliche. They're all accolades or they're all, you know, kind of goals that, that you achieve in life. And so you should. I think, you know, um, we've got uh, – we should motivate and get up every day and practice the discipline to do that. Again, we can go back to the ancients. That's all they were saying amongst all of the words and the phrases and the cool shit that we put on social media posts and whatnot. The, the message was – you know, practice the discipline. Don't practice the little micro behaviours and habits and all the rest. Of it. Practice the discipline to get up and keep going. And I hope that I keep doing that. Um, I'm blessed with ADHD, which which uh, which I think is um, a really good thing. I love it. I wouldn't be without it. So it's not hard for me to jump out of bed every day. Um, but um, without, I think the the family it goes that saying, um, uh, uh, cherishing your family. Um, being charitable inside your family is just so important, and uh, and I'm glad I I'm glad I married Danielle. Uh, she she pulled the wool on me straight away when we first met. I told her I was a, a florist, uh, and I was opening up a new office in Perth because I thought I was cool. I was with the SAS, and I had to have a, a, a cover story, and she just went bullshit straight away. And I thought, yeah, that's that's someone someone will call my bullshit, and it'll be uh, I'll buy into that. Mate, I reckon those are, are three pretty cool themes to, to wrap up our chat, this idea of complexity and just the, the messiness of life, but the ability to find someone um, who, who can stand by you through, through all of that and, and help you, as you say, just always go that, that little bit further and, and keep driving for the, the new venture. Pretty inspirational stuff, mate. Thank you very much for your time um, chatting with us today. Thanks, guys. Thanks, thanks, Tim, and thanks, Ben. It's a, a pleasure. Thanks a lot. And congrats, Moff, on on the book Eleven Bats. A fantastic read. Um, easy to read, but also forces you to reflect pretty deeply in parts. And I, I certainly appreciated um, reading it, and um, yeah, the messages that that are woven through there, Moff. And of course, the cricket overtones. Absolutely love them. Great. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate it. Good on you, mate. Cheers. Shots crack around you. You remember the high. Hey, we, we've got a um, we've got a, a podcast with uh, the Mission Critical Team stuff. It goes into the US and the UK predominantly, um, and hopefully in time it'll it'll come here. Uh, and if you're interested next year, I'd love to have you both on as a, yeah, that'd be awesome. as, as a reciprocal guests. If, if if you're up for that, no, we'd be really keen. That'd be great. Yeah, good on you, Pronky. Thanks, Tim. Uh, speak soon. love music and the arts and truly believe that these form a key component of resilience and make the world a much more beautiful place. Music played on this podcast can reach over a thousand ears a day and the incredible artists who gave us permission to use their music on season one have been downloaded tens of thousands of times on Spotify. 
If you are a musician or band who wants to expose your songs to a global audience in over 100 countries, please get in touch with us at debrief at unforgiving60.com. Side.